0: Okay, so good morning, Dr. I mean, Dr. Detective Carillo. I'm sorry about that. Um, welcome to my podcast. This is Crime Curious. And you are our first guest today. This is the first episode. So thank you for being here with me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so um, for everybody who hasn't seen the Night Stalker docuseries yet, can you pretty much give us an insight to who you are, what it is you did or do, and pretty much everything like that?
1: Well, I was born a long time ago. <laughs> I'm just a uh, 30. I worked for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department for 38 years of which 26 of those 38 years were spent working homicide. Uh, I spent 21 as an investigator in my last five days prior to retirement. I was a lieutenant and I had 14 homicide investigators working for me. So it was uh, a great uh, great job, very fulfilling, a lot of work, a lot of stress, a lot of hours. And during that time, one of the cases that uh, I was the investigator on, I was the only investigator on from beginning to end, was that of the night stalker, Richard Ramirez, who I got the first case March 17th of 1985, and he was arrested August 31st of 85. It was a long, hot summer. It was international news at the time. That was several years ago. There have been documentaries on it. There have been movies. Uh, made for television movies, nothing really uh, as deep or as uh, true. Uh, the, the Tiller Russell, the director on this thing, did a fabulous job, but he was very accurate in everything he portrayed uh, because realities, in, in his words, when we met and we talked, he decided that his story was going to be that of not so much the killer himself because other people had done stuff and he's not into, uh, he really didn't care about the killer in this case, Richard, but what he did care was about the story about the investigators, the investigation and the community in which this occurred. So the documentary is a four-part documentary and it's about a young Hispanic investigator. That was me. Cause it was a long time ago. <laughs> and, uh, where I was, he initially, uh, lead investigator with my partner uh, that didn't last too long before he went out. <clears throat> he, he was sick medically. And where I had a theory of where I tried to follow up on, I was uh, contending that whoever this killer was, not only was he killing and sexually assaulting women, killing men, but he was also abducting and sexually assaulting kids, making him a pedophile and not just, female, but male as well. So this documentary documents the six month investigation that went into it, and the personal lives of myself being unbelieved and being scoffed at for having uh, this theory. And then the toll it took on my family and in particular, my wife, uh, who was entrusted with taking care of the children, my three children in the house and myself was dedicated to finding this killer who was dangerous, not only to the residents of Los Angeles County, but to my family personally, because they were residents. And so I didn't have much to do with my family and not until this documentary came out uh, did I realize the impact that it had on my wife. And I had to apologize to my wife because I had factored everything in except for the fear factor. And her rock, which is me, she leaned on me when she was frightened I was never around so it was a difficult time and that's what this documentary is all about.
0: Right right and that's awesome um, you know honestly I saw it I've seen it probably three times four times already and um, I love your wife she's beautiful she's just amazing she's wonderful. Well um, oh, thank
1: you very kind of you.
0: You too you, you're amazing I mean incredible you and Frank uh, awesome so when you were first approached about the docuseries I mean, how long in the making was this? How many years or how long did it go back?
1: Well, it, 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 it actually started uh, probably about three years ago where a friend of mine, a former member of the sheriff department was, uh, had gone off medically and was now a writer for television. And he was writing on a very well-known program at the time. And he called me up, wanted to take me out to dinner. And uh, matter of fact, I was just with him yesterday at a family funeral. And uh, so I said, certainly and he wanted to invite a friend, a co-writer with him. And the purpose of the meeting was uh, at that time, he said, you know, if you look at television today, there just isn't uh, a lot of lead roles or positive characters for Hispanics in, uh, on American TV. And so we just want to talk to you. And I said, certainly, we went out to a nice restaurant And it was just a session to sit down and talk with both writers. And we never talked about anything other than just life and what it was like working on the Night Stalker case. And they just had a lot of questions and I answered them. And that was it. The next morning he called me up and he said, the guy really liked you. And I said, I just told him, I said, well, you know, I, I had a good dinner. I had a glass of wine. I met a new friend. So it was all good for me. I really don't care. What happens to television? I'm not a television person. And about a year and a half later, that man that was with him, Tim Walsh, called me up and he said, I'd like to introduce you to somebody else. I want to meet you. How about dinner again? Went out to dinner again. And that's when I met Tiller Russell, the director. And uh, these gentlemen, the three of them, they're all genuine, 100% great guys. They're just nice, my kind of people, uh, not pretentious at all. Uh, not what I expected out of a director. I expect to see some old gray haired guy, and this guy's young, he's cool, and calling, Hey, brother, what's going on? So it was a almost like an instant bond, and we enjoyed dinner. Then he said, I think you make a great character. I, I like just listening to you. You know how to tell a story. And I'd like to make a documentary, and we could do this. And uh, I told him I was in, if that's what he wanted to do, if he was willing to try it. And I had seen couple of his documentaries already, excellent documentaries. And so I said, certainly, because here's a man who was really into business, do it, and now he's telling me this. And I told him the same thing, though. Uh, I really didn't care. I wasn't interested in money. I really wasn't interested uh, in television. Uh, the only reason I'd go along with it was because I want to leave a legacy for my children my grandchildren. So my grandkids can sit there and say, that's my papa. you know. And so that would mean a lot to me. So then we decided we'd move forward. That's what we did. That's how it started. That actually, from that point forward, it probably took another year and a half for this thing to be completed. Wow. So about a three-year process.
0: Wow. It came out fantastic. It's really good, really detailed. You know, it gives an insight to not just you know the victims but to you guys the hard work that you all put in to you know track this guy down and get him
1: well thank you that was all the magic of tiller russell and his crew
0: yeah it, it was amazing and you know um one of the things is that you know they always mention el paso i'm from el paso i'm here in el paso this is where i live and uh, I'm like, man, you know, El Paso's always on the map for the wrong things. Every single time that we're on the map, it's it's for the wrong things. And now everybody, you know, wants to come to El Paso, wants to see where Richard's from. They want to, you know, walk around here and do all these things. And, you know, but it's, it's not what they think it is. And I really hope that they do realize it's not what they think it is. You know, probably his home is torn down, you know, all that stuff. El Paso's a lot bigger now. There's just not... It's not as small as it used to be back then. I guess you can say. And um,
1: well, let me say this about El Paso. <laughs> I like El Paso.
0: Oh, I love it. Uh,
1: my wife has rel- My wife has relatives there. I've been back there several times. Uh, I made friends with the cops out there because of this case, and we're still friends uh, today. It, it's a. I I love the place. Uh, I have absolutely no problems, and I, I remember most the, the funniest thing about El Paso. I remember. During, right after the arrest of Richard Ramirez, there used to be a Miss USA that was from El Paso, and they had a great big billboard with her picture on it uh, on the outskirts of El Paso, and it said, welcome to El Paso, home of Miss USA, and they gave her a name. And some young enterprising, I say young, because it had to be young, climbed up there and and in spray paint, sprayed on the bottom, and also Richard Ramirez. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, so I got I mean, to kick out of it you know it's it is something and you know I recently learned that my uncles did go to high school with him too they knew him back in those days and they said that he was a very very quiet person he was bullied a lot you know kids were able to push him around he never did anything he never stood up for himself but they never thought in their mind that he would go on to do the horrific things that he did mm-hmm. and um, you know I think it I think it is crazy and I wanted to ask you, What are your true thoughts on him? When you met him, what was going through your mind?
1: He's nothing but a man. He's nothing but a human. That's all he is. Uh, He's no sinister, evil monster that people saw and said he looked so evil. He's nothing more than another human being. When I go into an interview room with someone like Richard or any murder suspect, uh, it's just like a professional baseball player or football player. It's game face. It's game time and you think of nothing other than what you have to do, what your job means. And when I met him, my job was to get acquainted with him, show him that I held no ill feelings towards him because I want to talk to him and I want him to talk to me. And if you go in there making faces and pounding your fists on a table or cussing anybody out, you don't get anything. You treat them nice. You treat them just like if you were in their shoes on the other side of the fence and you know you'd like to be treated with some kind of uh, real feelings you know uh giving them the benefit of the doubt and giving them a break you know at the end of the day they're the ones that are going to spend the rest of their lives in prison not me i'm going to go home and see my family they're not so there was no nothing special about him he was quite articulate
0: I mean, that's what I've heard. And, you know, I've, I've heard some of his interviews, and he doesn't seem to be dumb. He seems very intelligent. Um, He's
1: well read, yeah. self taught. That's for sure. He had studied serial killers. He's, out of his words, I can tell you everything from the time the Romans fed the Christians to the lions to the modern day son of Sam. You know, he was, he knew all, while he was in custody, him and Ted Bundy used to write to each other, they used to correspond. And he was excited when we took him to jail and he found out that he was going to be in the same cell that Angelo Bono was in, who was one of the Hillside Stranglers. He was actually excited. He referred to me as Gil. He referred to my partner as Mr. Salerno because he had respect for Mr. Salerno because he had worked on Hillside Strangler.
0: Wow. You know, also um, in the docuseries, it shows a couple of times that you guys were really, really close to having him. One of those times was in the dentist office what went through your mind how how upset were you when you realized that alarm didn't go off and you missed him again
1: well i i wasn't upset at the alarm uh because that's nothing more than mechanical and you know and and unfortunately i I had to explain to a few people because they say boy lapd really messed up lapd did mess up when you what's your favorite base do you follow baseball at all yes who's your favorite team san francisco Okay, with San Francisco's up there. When the catcher for San Francisco lets a ball get by him and the winning run scores, you don't say that the whole team is no good. You don't say the giants suck. It's hey, your catcher made a mistake. You blame the catcher. He's the one that made the mistake. Well, in this case, it wasn't like it was an electronic device that didn't operate properly just like a television or radio, anything in your home. They put the alarm in. It didn't work. We got notified later that it didn't work. And so shame on us. The person that I was upset at was our executive that that gave the order to pull our cops out. We had two investigators undercover sitting inside there waiting for him to go in. He thought it was a waste of time, waste of money. The guy probably wasn't going to come back. He ordered us to take them out. He's not an investigator. He doesn't know. He's worried about money. He's worried about the dollar. He pulled him out and it told us, tell LAPD, because it's their area, it's their jurisdiction where this doctor's office was, uh, we're all aware that they have this alarm capability. Unfortunately, the alarm malfunctioned. That's all it was. You want to place blame, blame the investiga- the executive that pulled our investigators out of there.
0: Yeah. Do you guys, do you hold a grudge with him?
1: No, 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 he, he did it. You, you, it's not going to bother him. We're not the bottom line. We captured him. We convicted him. It's all water under the bridge, but I wish he wouldn't have done that that day, you know, because it was that day that Richard went back to the dentist. Right. And the dentist called us up that night and said, Hey, where were you guys? You know what happened? So we lost, we lost a great opportunity.
0: Right. And also going on, you know, it also mentions too that that car that he had stolen and they had, they left it in the pound where he drew the printogram on the hood. And they left that and the fingerprints ended up, I guess, from the heat exposure, they ended up vanishing. Um, Were you guys, you know, upset at that also? Because you could have. Oh, most assuredly.
1: Again, we weren't upset at all of Los Angeles Police Department. Shame on the cops that didn't do what they were supposed to do.
0: Right, right. It
1: just, they were either too busy or too lazy. One of the two, but it was not the entire department. You know, you got a cop that has a suspect right there that's recovering. He knows now it's a stolen car. And he knows now that he had that suspect with his hands on the hood of the car. You'd think that a reasonable cop have asked for immediate prints and he didn't he let it go didn't say anything to anybody when we got on board a couple of days later we're asking this guy to come in and meet us he even took a couple of days of sick days he didn't want to come in and talk so
0: (laughs) oh man so when it came down to the you know investigation and doing all that process obviously being a homicide detective is a very very difficult job what would you say was the hardest part about you know, the Night Stalker cases?
1: Well, there is no difference. These Night Stalker cases, the only thing there is is high profile, so there's more pressure. On an everyday, when we, in the business, jokingly say, this is nothing more than a routine, mundane murder. And there's not a lot of pressure. You go out, you work your case, you solve it, or move on to the next one if you don't. Well, in this case, We had people's lives in danger because we knew he was assaulting people. We had pressure from our families because they're frightened. We were never home. We have pressure from the executives of the department to solve this case because everybody's looking at the leaders, what's going on. The press is on us. So there's a lot more pressure, which means there's a lot more inner stress, which means a lot more hours. My captain at the time was quoted in the, Uh, Los Angeles Times is saying we were working 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, you stop to think about how much time that is. And that is, that's an awful lot of time and uh, bodies break down. Uh, I was starting to get stressed out. It was, I told my partner that he had me up for about two more weeks before I'd have gone bad. You know, I'd have have gone nuts. So you just try the best you can, do an awful lot of praying you know, get the strength from someplace.
0: Right. So I want to ask you, um, did you always want to be in law enforcement or what interested you first?
1: I chuckle when you ask me the question because uh, I was a product of the streets. You know, there's at one point in time since I noticed when you pronounced my name, you rolled your R's. And so I knew there had to be some Hispanic upbringing someplace in your life.
0: Oh, yeah. And, <laughs>
1: and so then I can express to you that at one time, this investigator that's sitting in front of you would be standing on the corner saying, I was headed for trouble. And a deputy sheriff offered to help. He was always trying to get us out of the street and out of trouble. And he said, if you ever need help, call me. Well, I wasn't going to graduate. I have six sisters. I was going to be the first one that wasn't going to graduate. And my English teacher said, you give me a term paper. And if it's good enough, I'll give you a D, which will allow you to graduate. So I asked him if he would help me write a paper. And he did. I want to write it about Cox, And he told my parents Then he took me home and said, signed for this boy to get off the streets here and end up dead or in prison. So I graduated at age 17 and right after graduation I went in, my parents signed for me and I went into the army. And I ended up in Vietnam. I had just turned 18 uh, two months prior. ended up in Vietnam right at the beginning of what is well known as the Tet Offensive, which was a, an all-out push, a lot a lot of rockets and mortars where I was at. so it was an ugly time. But what that did was it gave me an appreciation on life and it matured me and understand that there were more things, there were things more important than being a loser. And so when I got out of the army, uh, I wanted to go to college. I wanted to be the first one in my family to go to college. And uh, because at that time, it was, I was naive. I thought only rich white people went to college. So I started college right away as soon as I got out. uh, I wanted to become a cop then because I wanted to give back what some cop had given me. And that was, he saved my life. And number three, I wanted to start dating my (laughs) ex-girlfriend who broke up with me when I was in Vietnam so I could get her back and eat out of the palm of my hand so I could break up with her and watch her suffer like I did. And so I got out in June By September, I had her eaten out of the palm of my hand, and the day after Christmas, we got married (laughs) and just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary this past uh, December.
0: Oh, how sweet. Happy anniversary. You know, you have a lot of similarities to my dad. Um, He is going on 27 years in the police department also uh, here, and uh, yeah, he was a street kid also, always on the streets, and I mean... I wouldn't, for him, I wouldn't say that being a cop or anything, you know, saved his life. He just said it was a job and he took it. He's from Fabin's. So he he said it was a job. It was available. I took it.
1: Uh, This one, I wanted to give back and I still do that. That's why I do what I do. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, I was reading it. I was principal of the day at a local elementary school, reading a book to kindergartners. And so anything I can do for kids, I've spoken at uh, major universities, uh, I've lectured throughout the U.S., and I don't care if it's a kid in kindergarten or somebody working on their master's or doctorate. You know, I've, I've lectured all over the place, and I'll give back anything I can. What department does your father work for?
0: El Paso Police Department.
1: Oh, okay, I'm going to throw out a couple of names. Ask him if he knows. Dwayne John. Dwayne John. Yeah, Dwayne Johnson. Uh, Dwayne Johnson was an old homicide cop over there uh slam him, jam him, ramiro maybe his last name was gomez Uh, i had some great great times with the guys back there in el paso
0: yeah he he knows pretty much everybody he's been all over all over the town every i mean 27 years he's almost on his 30 he doesn't want to retire though he said no
1: well tell him i said thank you thank you for his service and keep up the good work
0: I will. And, you know, thank you also for yours, even though you are retired now, you did amazing work. Um, I want to ask you, who is your hero in life? Or do you have anybody who inspires you?
1: My father. My father uh, didn't have a formal education. And uh, he, his first father died at an early age his stepfather came in and then they ran him out of Dodge because he was molesting one of his sisters. And so my father was the father to his siblings. And there were probably Louis, Marcelino, Frankie, Daniel, Gula, probably about seven boys and three sisters or about at least 10 of them. And he was the dad to them. He raised them without an education, came out here had seven of his own kids and Nobody in my family ever went to jail. So he did something right, (laughs) left everything paid for. uh, And he never told me what to do when I was a kid. Even as an adult, he never said, do this, do that. He, He hinted or gave me advice, but allowed me to make my own decisions. I watched the way he handled my older sisters and what a job he did. And he set the example. And at one point in time, I was going through some advanced training in the department, and they asked us, they asked the class to get in groups. We each broke up, and they wanted us to name three of the uh, best known leaders, three leaders that were on their list. And what are the qualities of becoming a great leader? And so at that time, you had guys named like, you know, George Washington. Uh, General Schwartzkopf and they're big, big guys. And uh, what does it take to be a leader? Education, perseverance, humility, understanding, and all these attributes to be a good leader. And they said, okay, thank you, we took a break. And the guy that was instructing the class came by and says, Gil, he says, what'd you think of our little training session? I said, it was all right. He says, what'd you think about your leaders? And I said, it was fine. I said, it was good. He says, Who's was your leader? I said, well, my leader wasn't up there. He says, who's that? And I said, it was my dad. I said, but he wasn't up there. So said, why didn't you put his name? I said, because he didn't have the attributes. And he says, it doesn't matter. Your dad That's the real answer we're looking for. It's people that influence you, your father, your teachers, uh, people that influence you in life. And he said, will you tell that story? When we come back up and back, I said, no, I can't. I'll, I'll get emotional. So he said, do you mind if I share? I said, no, you can So he did. And so my dad was still to this day. And if you watch the documentary, all I ever want to do in life was make him proud. And the night that we convicted him, as uh, I had never cried as an adult male. Never. And I came home and I got in bed and I was just crying like a baby. My wife just leaned over and said, It's okay. He was with you. He was with you. Because I missed my dad. He's my hero.
0: That's wonderful. And I do believe he was with you the whole process. Still with you today. Always anybody who's ever passed, they're in our hearts. You know, we pray to God that they're okay on the other side. Um, Sure. Let's get back to, you know, Richard. Let's see. Um when the trial was going on, of course you were a witness, you had to be. What did you think in the courtroom when he was you know, pulling those shenanigans or when the groupies came, what are your thoughts?
1: It didn't, none of that bothered me at all. You know, as he said, I ah, it goes with the territory. Well, be, I expected that of uh, him. He, once again, he's nothing more human. These females, the groupies that were following him, they were, uh, one, one day we were there and uh, two beautiful ladies, they were attorneys. There's no doubt in my mind they were attorneys. They had their little attachés, their briefcases, uh, dressed right out of a fancy magazine, business suits, uh, but very, very pretty. And as they were, as Richard was walking out, when Richard would walk in the courtroom, first thing he'd do is he'd scan the section where the public sat to see which, what pretty girls were around there that day. Then, when it was time for him to end, he would walk out and. Make eye contact with the one he wanted. Well, as he's walking out, he's walking right by me, and I see him. And I see these two beautiful ladies. One of them sitting right on the corner. She blew him a kiss and spread open her legs for him. And uh, so, you know, it didn't. I I went back and told my partner. I said, "Hey, put me in custody. See if it works for me too." You know, <laughs> but it, it there. You know, I you, you can't. I don't know. I don't worry about anybody else. You know, one of my uh, college students told me he was from the South and he said, my daddy always taught me some things just need a whole lot of leave alone. And so that just told me, man, I, I, I can't control what those people want to do or what he does. I only can do what I can do.
0: Right. Was this your first ever case in homicide or was it just your first major case?
1: Oh, this was the first major case. I had been working murders for four years already. Okay. And, and so you figure at that time, during those years, we were probably getting 15 to 20 murders a year. And that wasn't counting officer-involved shootings or just regular suicides, accidentals or anything like that. So I'd seen a lot of death, done a lot of investigating uh, when I got this.
0: Wow, all right, um, let's see. Um, I think you mentioned in the docu-series that you pray for everybody at night you pray for everyone um does that include you know people who you've crossed paths with such as richard or just people like that in general
1: every night or every morning if i'm too tired when well, i go to bed because i'll fall asleep when i pray
0: well whenever so you pray in general yeah. i guess yeah. yeah
1: but uh every day i do and in the end i add on uh and one more thing, because by this time now, I'm just talking to him. And I said, I'd like to add, uh, pray for the soul. And Richard's one of the guys that I pray for his soul. And the other one is Charlie Manson. I mean, these are two of the most vile men in the world in existence. And I wanted no sympathy for them. And if they got murdered in prison or if they got sentenced to death and executed, so be it. You know, I have no control. All I do is my job. And once it gets to that point, my job is done. I don't. I don't really care. When I told the director, he was kind of shocked that I went through all of this and all the all the devastation that he he caused. And yet, I found it in my heart to say a prayer. And he says, "I've got to ask you why." And I said, "You know, someone once said that the good Lord is all forgiving." I said, uh, "I understand. I'm not forgiving of the man, but." Uh if anybody needs help, he does. Ain't nobody else gonna pray for that man. And so I just want, want the good Lord to know that I'm praying for his soul. Now it's out of my hands whether he wants to save that soul or not. You know, that's not up to me. I just say a prayer for his soul because I know nobody else is other than his family, maybe.
0: Right. Um I just had a question on the tip of my tongue and I totally forgot. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, at any point in time, did he display any remorse or any sorrow?
1: He, he displayed remorse over one uh, one of the victims who was a 16 year old girl at the time. And he asked us to g- give her a message that he was sorry. And we did. That's the only one. It, it's, it's uh, I don't know how these people think, you know uh people have asked me was he crazy was he this was he, i i don't know i'm not a doctor He asked me hey Gil, what do you think i'm like this i said i don't know rich you know if i knew the answer to that i'd be a doctor making a lot more money than i am as a cop said, my job is to gather the facts make the presentation get you convicted that's it but he was sorry for one victim and one victim only yet on the other hand we talked openly after conviction about a 10 year old girl that he kidnapped and all he was concerned about in that case was the only thing he felt sorry for was a little puppy who got out. Didn't know if the dog made it out all right, or, you know, whatever happened to the little dog. He felt sorry for the dog. Didn't say anything about the girl or anybody else. So here he's sorry about a dog, but he doesn't care about what he just did.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's tells a lot. Um... In the book, it mentions that the author has over 100 hours of audio recordings with Richard Ramirez. I guess he interviewed him on death row. Do you think that those will ever be released, those tapes?
1: I have no idea. I have no idea. I I could probably, uh, I still keep in touch with the author's wife and and Phil Cardle, the author of the book, uh, if that's who you're speaking of. Yes. Uh, See, up until you just said that, I didn't know anything about the tapes, so... (laughs) But she has shared other things with me, and, and Phil was a very nice man. We became friends. I took him down my mom's house and gave him some real Mexican food and <laughs> met my family. He was a nice man, and uh, God bless his soul, uh, he died of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And so I've kept in touch with his wife. His wife, like I said, has sent me stuff. I didn't know about these tapes. I'd be curious to hear them just for, a Curiosity,
0: so. yeah, you know, he mentions in the book that he went, I think, Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. almost every single day, interviewing Richard for a couple of years so he could get information on the book. But Richard had said he didn't want any of these recordings to be released ever.
1: Ah. and if Phil Carl, and, and I'll tell you right now, if he asked Phil Carlo that, and Phil Carlo said, I won't, well, then Phil Carlo, if he were alive today he wouldn't give them to me. He wouldn't let me hear him or maybe let me hear him, but he wouldn't release him to me. So, and I don't know. uh, I'll ask her, you know, I'm just curious now, just because I'd like to hear what he had to say.
0: In the book, it also mentions that every time in court that Richard saw you, he was still cordial with you and always said, hello. Is, is that? Well, yes, that's
1: true. Yeah, it's true. It's funny. Him and I got along, you know, I never treated him bad, and I don't know what people think. Uh, that's the other side that this docuseries demonstrated. All cops are not evil, mean, and, you know, tough and rough. And Richard and I got along. He called me Gil, I called him Rich. And the first time he came in the courtroom, he saw me, and he said, Ore le And the non-Spanish-speaking news media that was there as soon as we went into recess, they all rushed me and they wanted to know what was, was that a death threat? What did he say? What was he telling you? And a local newspaper, a uh, local television reporter who we're still friends today, Mr. Tony Valdez, he was in the documentary.
0: Yes, I remember seeing him. Yeah, he's
1: the one that talked about El Cucuy. Yeah. And so Tony, he knew what Richard had said. And he came up to me and said, Orale Carrillo. And every time I see Tony, Every time I talk to him on a phone or even in, a, in an email, he always starts off with Orale Carrillo. So, no, Rich and I got along. In the end, uh, Rich had told me when last we last faced each other and spoke, he said he needed about seven years. Then he would tell me about some more murders that he occurred that we didn't know about. And uh, I never said anything to him. We looked at eight more murders but there wasn't enough evidence to bring him into our case of chief. So we just let him go. Uh, but after he got married, uh, I believe Doreen was her name. I can't remember her name, Doreen.
0: Yeah, Doreen.
1: And so once he got married, the press came up to me and they wanted interviews. What did I think? And I told him, I thought it was a mockery of the criminal justice system. And I thought it was a mockery of, the, of uh, all that, the church uh, promotes, there, there was never going to be you know, a consummation of their marriages. It was a mockery of religion. Uh, it was a mockery of the justice system because he wasn't put in there for rehabilitation. He was put in there for punishment. He was sentenced to death. So I didn't understand why he had the right to get married. What And when he did, you know, what does that do to everybody? What does it do to the meaning of everybody else's marriage? gone and gone to the church and asked for this. And so I was not happy. And I expressed my unhappiness. Well, I had a couple of investigators go up there a few years later on another case. I said, hey, ask which because I got word that he wanted to talk to me. And I sent word back up. If he's going to tell me the truth and not start to BS me, well then I'll go up and visit him. And when I sent these guys up there, he just said, no, I don't want to talk to him. So I all right. I didn't, uh, didn't lose any sleep. He asked me if I was going to go to his, uh, when they sentenced him to death, if I'd go to his execution. He asked my partner, my partner said, you're damn right. I'm going to be there. And he asked me, so what do you, what about you, Gil? I said, I don't know. You know, I really don't care, Rich. I've seen enough people die in combat. And I've seen enough people die here on the streets. I said, I don't need to watch somebody else die. But if you want me there, I'll be there. If not, no, I don't care. And he said, I'd like you there. I said, okay, you want me there? I'll be there. And if he had died of execution, I'd have been there because I told him I would, but that's about it. You know, I, we got along with it. It was all like i I'd like to say a professional relationship. I needed him. I wanted to talk to him.
0: A lot of people who have written him letters or have met him said that he was actually a pretty polite guy. Would you agree?
1: He was polite with me, he was polite with me. He wasn't, uh, like I said, he was more articulate and calm than any other murder suspect I've interviewed.
0: Right. Did you, um, did you ever think, you know, after he got his death sentence, you know, it took so long, he was in there for 23 years. Did you think to yourself, when is it going to happen? Or did you always feel like it wasn't going to happen?
1: I lean more towards it was not gonna happen. California is a very, her leaders are very liberal. Matter of fact, the governor right now has put a stop to all death sentences. You know, he's not, he will not execute anybody. He doesn't believe in the death penalty. So with all the appeals and everything else that goes on in life, I didn't, uh, I didn't foresee that it was gonna come quick.
0: Right. There's some people who, you know, on TikTok get upset because maybe they like Richard Ramirez and they're interested. And then somebody brings up the Menendez brothers and they say, that's not the same thing. Do you agree or do you kind of feel like the Menendez brothers still murdered people also?
1: No, I, I don't understand the, the relationship. I, I guess I don't really understand your question. A murder is a murderer. There is, you know, it, you, you should not be allowed to take the life of anyone And when you do, if you stop to think about it, murder is nothing more than an irrational act followed by acts of rationality. It's irrational to take somebody's life, but the rational side, as soon as you've done it, comes out and says, oh, now I gotta hide. I can't be caught. I gotta do everything to get away from it. So the Menendez brothers, they kill their parents and they're in prison, that's where they should be. Whether they die in there, once again, It's not up to me. It's up to somebody else.
0: Right. Um, Should I always, I keep forgetting my questions. Um, I forgot what I was going to ask you. (laughs) Oh yeah. In the book, it does mention that you and Richard spoke Spanish to each other. Was he more fluent in Spanish than he was in English?
1: I, I can't say he was very, he was fluent and we spoke, but most of the time we spoke in Spanish, it was very short term. You know, we spoke, a lot of the street stuff, you know, I, I, I told you in the beginning, you know, so we could speak it, but he spoke his English was fine. So it was easy enough for us to communicate in English.
0: Right. Um, one last question. Um, so do you have any advice for anybody who's watching this that wants to be a homicide detective or involved in law enforcement?
1: Well, I, I tell you, I, I hope some of your listeners out there Uh, If they want to be uh, in law enforcement, I encourage them to follow their dreams. Uh, I believe it's a great job. It did great things for me. It gave me a great deal of satisfaction, and I owe that job everything. Otherwise, if it weren't for that job, you wouldn't be wasting your time talking to me via Zoom. (laughs) Uh, If they're going to be and in order to do, end up doing what I'm doing or what I did as an investigator. Uh, you start at the bottom, you start at control. And if you get into law enforcement, you have to remember a couple of things. Number one, never forget where you came from. Never forget where you came from and you can't do it alone. You need the support of someone, whether it be a brother a sister, a girlfriend, a wife, a mother, a father, you need a support system that's going to support you because you're going to go out and you're going to see some ugly things that are never going to leave your mind. You'll remember them for the rest of your life very traumatic. You'll see other things that are very rewarding that you save someone's life. And you're so happy. You took that job. Just you have to have the understanding that people do what they do for a reason. You don't have to condone it, but you have to understand it. I understood why Richard had to kill or why he had to rape. I didn't condone any of it, but I understood why. And so you have to have that understanding. You cannot uh, let your own personal feelings get in the way of your work. People depend on you and you have to put your personal feelings aside. If you want to go into investigative work in specific homicide work, well, then you have to realize that a homicide investigator is not a job, it's a lifestyle. So your whole world is dedicated towards solving someone's death you owe that to the decedent and you owe it to their family to give every bit of work time you have available to them which means i spent more time with my partner than i did with my family because and my wife knew uh, there's a program on television called the first 48 and in my world it was more like the first 72 we would work i've testified in court that I'd gone straight 37 hours without going to bed on a case when I finally, because something else had come up, something ultimately led to an arrest and to a confession. And so those are the kind of hours you put in. And that's kind of dedication it takes. You have to have that ability. It took me three stops to get home because I was so tired, you know, pull over, grab a coffee or grab something to drink. Uh, but nonetheless, you got to be able to got to be able to do that and in order to get to that place not only in patrol work but in uh, homicide work everything relies on your ability to document in the English language properly right 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 if it's not written it didn't happen and everything has to be communicated like that so that someone who knows nothing about police work could pick up your report and know exactly what happened at that murder scene and exactly what it looked like. So that's what you have to have the ability to do. It's a great job. I, I wouldn't, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't trade any of it.
0: Right. Um, I'm curious because you just said that you understood why Richard did what he did or what do you mean by that?
1: I took, I give all credit to, to a professor of mine at Cal State LA, his name is Robert Morneau. Dr. Morneau was a retired FBI agent who taught advanced criminal investigation pertaining to sex crimes. I took two semesters from him and he required more work than any professor i had ever had. He said, making me a reasonable and prudent sex crimes investigator. That's why in the beginning, I was seeing things that others weren't. And that is in order to be that reasonable and understanding investigator, you have to have understanding. Richard, his crimes in my heart, I believe, were all sexually motivated crimes. He was what we would call a lust killer. So he derived, first off, he derived sexual gratification, arousal is a better word. He derived arousal out of seeing the fear in your eyes. You know, you go see all these horror movies and you go see, you get the screen. Well, he got excited looking at you sp- Frightened. If you did everything he said, you survived. If you did not acquiesce, then you died. And so I understood that because that gave him sexual gratification. I don't condone it, but I understand it. And if I understand it, then it makes it much easier for me to talk to him. And that's exactly how it worked.
0: Right.
1: That's what I meant by understanding.
0: Okay, yeah, because I just wanted to get, you know, the definition on that, because if, you know, anybody watching this is, you know, in love with Richard, they might take it the wrong way. I didn't want them to take it the wrong way. So, um, well, I want to say, Detective Garillo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being on this podcast with us. Um, Hopefully we can have you on again for another episode, if you're willing, later on.
1: As long as we get this uh, Zoom stuff straight out, we're, we're good. Oh, yeah. I'm
0: so sorry about that.
1: <laughs> Every time I tried to get on the other link you sent me, it would just say, She's in a meeting right now. You'll have, and it just kept the wheel kept rolling, but it wouldn't do anything.
0: I have no idea what happened with that. It's because it gave me two different links with two different passwords. And so I'm not sure why it did that either, but I got the right one finally. So. <laughs>
1: I'm glad it worked out. I hope it works out good for you. Good luck. Best wishes. Yeah. Don't forget to tell your dad I said thank you. What a pretty smile. I looked at your fingernails all painted up.
0: Oh, yeah. They hear it. Cow print. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Well, thank you have a wonderful you. day. Thank you thank for you taking you the too.
0: time. Thank you. God bless you, Dr. I mean, Detective Gario. I'm so sorry. I can't you home. God me
1: bless you. Call me doctor. I'd take the money if you give it to me.
0: <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much. God bless you and have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.